I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GO team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, my friend. It's good to talk to you on another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. I hope that you're all recovered from at least one, if not two, of the COVID holidays. I know that uh, it's a little bit of a trying time not being able to have shared Christmas with friends and family, but I know that you probably may do somehow, some way, John. Yeah, I've got too much invested in this this virus to screw around, so I stayed away from everybody. Yeah, well, I'm sure they appreciated that. Yeah, I did. In more ways than one. <laughs> I just don't want to get this thing. I, I want this vaccine to get out to everybody, and I want to see how we get back to normal. I want to go back to to being able to run all over wherever and whenever I want. No, I quite agree, and and now in the news the past couple of weeks, not only has there been information and at least discussion about a new severe strain of the virus, there was a story in the recent past about a, a guy who apparently got on a United flight, must have been sick, didn't say anything when they asked him the questions, and ended up dying on the flight or thereabouts. And I mean, this stuff is not anything to mess around with. If you're sick, stay home or go to the hospital, do whatever. But you got to respect other people. And that's the thing that's driving me nuts is the fact that, okay, if you don't want to wear a mask, fine, don't wear a mask, go out in the field and, you know, go breathe clean air somewhere else. But I don't want you anywhere near me. Yeah. Apparently he infected a few other people too. And they they were the ones that tried to uh, give him CPR. So you had they trying to be decent human beings and instead they get bit by the disease. Yeah, it is sad. And, you know, I know that everybody is just chomping at the bit to get back to, quote, normal. But it's going to be a new normal. Even after everybody gets vaccinated and everything else, this isn't the cure-all. This isn't the end-all. And, in fact, if you look at it, the flu has substantially decreased because of people wearing masks. (laughs) So it's had a positive benefit in one way. And if if we can see the actual numbers with the flu virus, just think as if, you know, some everybody wore their mask for two weeks straight. We could really put a dent in the number of people that are being exposed and infected. Well, before we go any further, I'd like to mention to everybody that this show is being brought to you today by Avemco Insurance Company. And they have been uh, very good sponsors of ours for the last several months. 
They're a company that rewards safe pilots for recurrent training, new ratings, uh, participating in the FAA's FAST program, the team wings. And, and even if you mention that you listen to this podcast, they'll give you a 5% discount on your insurance, which is nothing to laugh at. And so if you're in, if you're in the market looking for insurance, give them a call, 888-879-0389, and just mention the show before they give you a quote. You get yourself a discount. Yep, you get yourself a discount. And one of the things, John, that I'm finding out now when I go out and rent airplanes is a lot of the flight schools now are requiring me to carry my own renter's insurance. And that's never really been a prominent thing in the past because typically if you're renting an airplane, it would fall under the fleet policy. But now I'm starting to find that you have to buy a supplemental insurance policy. So if you folks are in the in the market to get any kind of insurance, whether you're insuring your own aircraft or talk to them about renter's insurance as well, because that's it seems to be the wave of the future because of some of the liability that's come down with rental aircraft. So, Well, speaking of liability, if you look at some of these uh, accident reports that are coming in, I shake my head. I really shake my head. Basic pre-flights that are not accomplished. What do they think? You know, I, I've been saying this around the, the FBO. I said, what do you think the, the walk around is? Just walking out and walk around the airplane? <laughs> I mean, if you're going to take the time to just go out and walk around the airplane, then do your job. If you're going to take the time, you may as well use the time wisely. Uh, I mean, between just simple things on airplanes that people are missing on the pre-flight. And again, running out of gas. We've been talking about this since the Wright brothers. I mean, this is not rocket science when it comes to figuring out, hmm, I got 90 gallons of gas. I burn 15 gallons an hour. Do the simple math. (laughs) And leave yourself a cushion. Yes. I mean, because the FAA requires you to leave yourself a cushion. 30 minutes, 45 minutes, if you're flying at night, VFR, IFR, you're a pilot. You need to know and practice these things. And use your head. Yeah, you just don't write it down on a test and forget about it. It's just, it's crazy. And we're breaking more airplanes and hurting more people because of these very simple, stupid type mistakes. I've been starting to tell some of the younger people at the FBO, when you do your walk around, put your hand on the airplane. Touch it as you go around. Keeps you in the game. Doesn't let your mind drift. You just keep on touch the wing, touch the airplane. And after a while, you get to know it by feel as well as by looking at it. Yeah. You know, it is one of those things where you need that tactile feedback. If you're moving the elevator up and down and it's a little stiffer than you're used to, check it out. There could be something wrong. There could be something hung up between the cables in the empennage. There could be all sorts of things. You know, the pre-flight is what gets you started. And if you've done a lousy pre-flight and something happens in flight, Lord help you, you know, I mean, it's, you and I have been busy for years dealing with these very simple accidents. And it's just, it's sad. It gets you off on a bad foot before you even go leave. You know, good pre-flight gets you into the, into the airplane mentally before you even get into the airplane. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, you know, and then, uh, of course, with the 737 MAX coming back into service, there was an event involving a 737 over in Indonesia recently. And, of course, you know, the wires started burning up. Oh, my God, the airplane's back. 737's got a problem already. 
this wasn't a 737 Max, as I recall, John. I believe it was a, a 700 model. It was a simple uh, back taxi. The airplane had landed. It was raining. Apparently, it was raining pretty good, too. He had landed into the end, made the U-turn, essentially, and put one wheel off, off the edge of the runway. And because it had been raining, it was soft, and it just sunk in. So they had to offload all the people, take them to the terminal, and then get a tractor and tow bar and get the airplane out of there. Yeah, well, again, anything that involves an aircraft model number 737, they're gonna, somebody's going to make a story out of it. And speaking of stories, did you see this story that was floating around a week and a half ago, I guess it was? Two guys, Roger Rappaport, I think it is, and Chelm, recommending Sully for the FAA administrator. Yeah, I'll tell you, John, don't get me started on that. He doesn't understand aviation in toto. He made that obvious when he testified on the Hill. He knows one aspect of it that may be big airplane operation. Ten years ago, he had his moment in the sun, but that does not make him an expert. You and I have talked about this over the last year with regard to the 737 MAX. He never understood certification. He still doesn't understand certification. And in fact, when you look at the training aspects of the 737 and you look at what was changed on the 737, there was not a hardware change one. And he and millions of other people who, again, don't understand it was not the placement of the engines that required that MCAS system to be on there. Because guess what? The engines are still in the same place today as they were when the airplane rolled off the factory floor for the first time. It was all software changes. And people like that, when Dixon's done a good job thus far, but when you look at it, John, and you and I have had these discussions, that a lot of the administrators come from a heavy airplane background, big airplanes. Very rarely, if any, do they have really good general aviation experience? And general aviation tends to be a bastard child sometimes, of course, as, as well as maintenance. And, and you've been all over me about that. And I know that you've known a lot of the administrators in the past. Well, I can make a case that, that one of the best administrators that we've had in the last 25 years was Jane Garvey. And she was neither a pilot, mechanic, or anything else in aviation. She served on a board of an airport authority, and she had very little aviation experience when measured against both previous and, and post her tenure as administrator. But she went through turbulent times, and she did make major changes in the business, and they were all positive. So I think Jane did an outstanding job as administrator, and all those naysayers that said that pulled up her experience and were criticizing her in the beginning, I hope they're biting their tongues now because she did one heck of a job as an administrator. Yeah, and I think that's great. I think that, you know, somebody like that who comes in with a fresh perspective, who doesn't have an intimate understanding or involvement in aviation is actually better because it forces them to ask more questions and it forces people to answer more questions and more questions with regard to policies and procedures and is this a good idea versus somebody that comes in thinking they already know it and their decision is going to be beneficial when they don't really look at the 360 degree picture. And I just don't think he is the right guy. I mean, hell, leave Dixon in. I like Steve right now. He came in under fire. The 737 Max put a load on his shoulders. 
don't break the system right now because it ain't broke. Can it be improved? Absolutely. We've talked about that, and I know that there will be improvements being made. But again, you need consistency and continuity. You cannot be doing, I mean, look at every NFL football team that changes their head coach every year or two years. They still stink. Well, guess what? That same thing happens in the government. Yeah, and, you know, he's got a five-year term, and he's, he's not very far into it. Unless he voluntarily leaves, he doesn't have to go anywhere. Good, and I hope he sticks around because the FAA needs some continuity right now. They need some solid leadership. And yes, he is a big airplane guy, but I think it, if you have people surrounding you that can educate you on at least the general aviation issues, because again, maintenance and general aviation seem to be in the shadows all the time. And hopefully we can, uh, we can pick that up because there are some serious things going on in GA that need to be addressed. Yeah, in fact, that's a good segue into our guest today in GA and, and uh, what's going on there. So I'll let you do the introduction. Well, today we have a great guest with us. Over the past 20-plus years, you heard about the advent of the ballistic parachute as a recovery chute for aircraft pilots that get themselves into trouble and, of course, being able to pull a chute. If they lose an engine, they pull a chute. They get themselves into a situation where they've lost control of the airplane. They have at least this backup system, the parachute, and it is really come into prominence within at least the last 20 years. So we're very fortunate today to have the president of Ballistic Recovery Systems, or BRS, with us. Enrique Dillon is the president of BRS, and we welcome you to the show, my friend. How are you today? Fantastic. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, John, for, for hosting me. It's an honor to, to share this uh, audience with you guys. BRS was founded in, back in 1980, so it's been 40 years now. Oh, 40 like, years 20. now, yeah. But the yeah, prominence but, part of it has really been 20. You guys were developing all of that stuff. Well, the prominence started with Cirrus, but before we had thousands and thousands of systems out in the market on ultralights and gliders, uh -huh. and experimental aircraft. And then we, you know, we moved into BRS, moved into a certified world. First, with this, with the Cessna 170, 150, 152, that prompted that was called the guard system back then, and that got Cirrus interested in doing something with us, and then we developed a solution for for the SR line at the time, and we progressed from there to do the systems for the 172, 182, and we hold over, I, I'm gonna say 350 to. 400 different installations for different kinds of aircraft. Wow, uh, that's, that, that's that, awesome. That the BRS could be installed in. We have over 38, 39,000 systems in the market through the year, which is considerable. Yes, that's that's awesome. Wow. We know it's scary. As I remember when they first came on the market 40 years ago. Wow. They were scary. No, but... We, we have uh, 438 lives saved as of today, and the number is not going to go down. It's only going to go up. Another interesting number to look at is like the amount of systems divided the amount of lives saved is pretty significant how big of a number it is. It's just yeah. you put 200 pilots in a room and you say one of two of you guys or one and a half of you guys is going to pull 
shoot and they're going to look at you like nah and yeah. yeah those are the numbers numbers don't lie well john i know that that's why they invented this thing was for you because they knew when you were flying you needed all the help you could get <laughs> <laughs> Hey, listen, I know I made aviation safer when I stopped flying. <laughs> well, it's interesting, Enrique, because, of course, like I said, you know, Cirrus really brought this as part of their sales package, giving a pilot that comfort of knowing that if there was something beyond their control or their capabilities, they had that safety system built into the aircraft. Have you seen with not only Cirrus, but a lot of the, uh, the other installations, do you get the sense that pilots use that as a crutch? That is, they put themselves in a position a little deeper than they normally would or or try to do things with an aircraft that they normally wouldn't do, but they know that, hey, I got this parachute. If it all doesn't work out, I just pulled the handle. I cannot speak for, for every particular pilot that is out there. I don't think that's that's a theme or that's what people are thinking. This is an extra layer of safety. And it's not the same for everyone. And we have a lot of uh, people that are arguing, the naysayers, oh, you, I don't need a parachute. It's like, I'm good enough of a pilot. There is different days and different you know circumstances that the best pilot ever and we have one too many stories of atps 20,000 hours all the ratings all the training everything that needed the parachute at the time and they saved their lives we don't advise you to go flying in because you have a parachute you're going to go above what what your capabilities are but sometimes life is such as an engine out you did your pre-flight you check your oil you check everything the maintenance, everything was perfectly fine, and you still have a you know, accident. And this is an incident now because we have a parachute, and people walk away from it. You know, I'd love to have a parachute on, on if I was still flying. I'd love to have a parachute on the airplane. And uh, just uh, a week ago, there was an AD out against Lycoming engines. I think it was the 360 for crankshafts, superior, superior aircraft performance. I think that's what it was. I've forgotten which one. Superior parts with a crankshaft that's a problem. And there's a couple hundred of them, I guess, that have to, uh, engines have to be torn down because they've been having failures. Well, a single-engine airplane with a parachute, I think, gives the the passengers and the pilot in those airplanes a big edge. What about maintenance on those chutes? You know, one of the things that that I thought of a while ago and I was thinking back to my experience on on uh, escape slides on airplanes. I did a lot of work with the manufacturers on escape slides. And they sit in this cocoon in the airplane, and then they start to deteriorate. And uh, everybody thought they were going to last forever. Now we're finding out that five years might be the absolute maximum that those uh, escape slides can sit in their little cocoon. What about the parachute? I mean, general aviation airplanes seem to last an awfully long time. Is there a time limit on the on the chute? What kind of maintenance is required? We have a 24-year time limit on the system itself, and depends on the kind of installation that you have, if it's a certified aircraft or an experimental or an ultralight that is exposed to the elements, you can go anywhere from 10 years inspections uh, or repacks, uh, repacks as we call them, you do need to inspect this every annual, of course, 
and on a condition before on your pre pre-flight checklist, there's some things you need to look at. It depends on the aircraft. But normally we have a like a like a six-year cycle for experimentals and a 10-year cycle for certified aircraft like the Sirius or the Cessna and a 24-year life of the system itself. What we found have found out, unfortunately, and, and the NTSB has prompted us to do something about or to, to communicate is that there's a lot of people flying with expired parachutes out there, expired rockets out there, thinking that, well, why should I go through the trouble of, of doing the repack and sending it into BRS and for them to inspect it? And there's a number of things that could have gone wrong. And, you know, as a matter of fact, a year ago or so, I was investigating an accident with the NTSB. Unfortunately, some people lost their lives in the process, and the aircraft was in such state of disrepair, corrosion all over, that lost a, lost a wing in, in a base to final situation. And the parachute was so expired that he didn't even have the time to deploy it, but if he had. And so we got the parachute back in the factory, we took it apart, uh, we looked at it. It was still in pretty good shape after all those years. But they, they prompted us to do something about it and to and to make a point to for people to you made the investment, you're flying there, you're flying with your family, you're or you're flying by yourself, your family's on the ground. You have this. Keep it keep it up. Do the maintenance. It's 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 so simple. Good morning, John on the ground, Canadian nine twenty. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. Hey nine twenty runway two four eight taxi. Enrique, when uh, when you have the shoot on these on these inspection cycles, you take the airplane in. Okay, you've hit your six year, ten year cycle. What's involved in taking the shoot, sending it back to BRS? Is there an expense there? Is that one of the driving factors of why guys think they can just get away with? Eh, it's still there. It's still intact. I'm not going to worry about it, kind of thing. Well, I can uh, think for somebody else, but I guess the expense is minimal in regards of what aviation costs are. So I, I did sometimes the numbers for different aircraft, and we are cheaper per flight hour than your oil changes. Wow. So if you fly 150 hours a year or so, the money you're going to spend your oil changes is going to be more accumulated through the six years or the 10 years on what you do the, the repack. The service is a little bit more money. Because there's a lot more involved, and there's has to go through serials, and we we don't do the serials. We do the serials repacks, but we cannot do them straight to the customer. But on on the other aircraft, you know, you, you just send it to us. Uh, we inspect it. Uh, we fix it. Anything is not to be fixed, and we send it back. And there's two cycles. Six years is just a parachute. You don't have to deal with a rocket. And every 12 years, a rocket expires, and we you have to buy a new one, and we'll give you a new one. Now, for so for John's benefit since he's a maintenance guy, is there any real significant maintenance that has to be done to remove the chute? Is it something that's readily done at an annual or a typical inspection that doesn't require any kind of rocket science on the part of the maintenance provider to to remove that chute in a rocket? It is very, very simple. We've we've done most of our installations. It's very simple. It's maybe a couple of hours to take it out and put it back in. It's a fairly simple process. Even in the experiment and the certified world, we have the RSTCs. RSTCs are designed so any AMP can do this. We do have a network of Cessna installers through the country and people that have done it and they do it consistently. But if you have your AMP that you trust and you work with him and he's doing your annual, he can definitely do this. And if 
he gets into a bind, he calls us, so we have a support line, you know, we email or phone and we can walk him through. So there's, there's nothing too complicated. Where do they send the, the shoot and what's the turnaround time? Depends on, on the time of the year, but it's been sent uh, right now to our facility in North Carolina, Pine Bluff, North Carolina. And there it gets inspected and repacked and sent back. And depends on what kind of system it is, the term around, but you're looking at anywhere between five to 10 days. Anything that, if you plan ahead and you know what's going on and you, you give us a, ahead of time, we will have all the needed parts. It should come in and out in within a week from the time it hits our dock and, you know, it's shipping involved back and forth. What have you seen or what kind of feedback have you gotten from the maintenance side with regard to misfires, failures to deploy, things like that. What are some of the, the things that you have seen with regard to installation, either from a repack standpoint or maybe an STC standpoint? Well, we haven't had misfires or failures when things are done according to, to installation procedures and parts installation manuals and stuff. We have had a couple of faulty installations that, that didn't go as planned. But if they follow our checklist and our product, the installation guide, and, and in the case of, for example, LSAs, we have to have a, a what is called a person installation manual, or PAM, we shouldn't have an issue. It's crazy because it's minimum equipment list part that you add to your aircraft once it's done in a certified world that you're never going to test. And it has to work every time. So our, our tolerances, our safety, our level of stringence in our quality, it is, has to be so, so high that we have to guarantee that every time you pull the handle, this thing is going to fire. And in 40 to 39,000 systems, we haven't had anything to speak of that hasn't worked. That's and that's sure. an impressive number you said earlier, 438 saves. That's pretty impressive. Yes, it is. And... We know there are more because we get a parachute in, in a box all full of leaves and with a letter, please repack my parachute, don't tell anything to my wife. So that is not <laughs> one of our documented saves. <laughs> yeah. yeah, honey, where's the airplane? Oh, it's over outside somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, can you man. please return it? <laughs> yeah, that's too funny. Rudder travel pitch field. Nav exterior lights. Servo control. Nine. Engine start panel. Crank it aboard. Fire handles. Hello. Seat belt no smoke. You're an accomplished pilot, Enrique. And from a, a pilot standpoint, you got a rocket on the airplane. You got a parachute on the airplane. But like anything else on an airplane, like John and I were talking about at the top of the show, Pre-flight is what gets you started. If you have a bad pre-flight and there's something wrong with the airplane, it's only going to get worse once you break ground. Have you seen any, and with all of the deployments that have saved these 438 people, have they been self-induced by the pilot? They put themselves in a bad position to have to utilize the parachute for lack of better judgment or something like that? Or have these all been some sort of mechanically induced type issue? that the pilots had to pull the chute. You have a mixed bag. I mean, you have some people that got in over beyond their heads and IMC situations and different stages, but that's not the norm. The norm is, you know, either mechanical failures or 
stuff that they couldn't foresee. And fortunately, that saved their lives and their family who was traveling with them. But you see down, and, and I, I've heard your shows, and, and people get complacent and people don't use, they're going to walk around the plane, they're going to touch it, but they're not going to touch it, they're just going to walk around. Why don't you use your time wisely and, you know, stick your head inside your baggage compartment, stick your head in where you're supposed to do it and, and check for stuff. And we've seen a couple of instances where installations were not done according to the manual and there were, you know, obstructions and stuff that wasn't done according to that. And, and pilots don't do. We have, for example, a safety pin on, on the activation handle. There is all over the place and all the checklists. You remove the safety pin. I was once going to take a demo flight on an aircraft that had had one of our shoots and the demo pilot i am lining up on runway and i look at the handle and the pin is there and i go are you not going to remove that pin and we're obviously going to maintain anonymous and they goes, oh well yeah if i needed to no 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 you need to do it now and oh. i've seen videos of Demos and aircraft uh, with our cupola parachute with a safety pin and the flag in there. It's like like everything. I mean, you need to check your oil, you need to check your fuel in your tanks. There's a list of pre-flight items that you need to comply with. The engineers that they spend hours and hours thinking what can go wrong, and that's why you have a checklist so you can be safer afterwards. It gets, as you just said, it only gets worse when you leave the ground. Yeah, because I've done it. I've investigated several accidents with airplanes that have had a BRS on, and one of them we still found. We found the pin still in the uh, in the handle, and this guy unfortunately VFR into IMC lost the airplane. I don't know if he tried to pull the handle and couldn't because the pin was there, or he freaked out and lost the airplane. But again, you know, you don't have time. You're not thinking clear. You you don't have seconds to really process the information, pull the pin and then pull the handle. I mean, like you said, it is a pre-flight item. And with that, I know that BRS has a supplemental checklist. Is that required to be incorporated or is it highly suggested to be incorporated in the normal aircraft checklist? In the certified aircraft, for sure. And experimental, you get your owner's manual, which has a checklist. And obviously, we suggest you do that. An experimental world, you do as you experimental words allows you to do that. The other important thing is to be cognizant and to be aware that you do have this safety system on, on board and run through mental checklists of, okay, what happens if, what happens that, when should I do this and when should I do that? And always incorporate your routine of, okay, I have a parachute, when should I pull it? How long should I wait? One thing is cruising at 10,000 feet, the engine goes out, there's no restart, I have plenty of time, there's many airports, well, I can land. The other thing is, like, where's my threshold? How low am I going to go before I pull the chute? Thinking I can restart or thinking I can land this thing. So you have to have be prepared. And this changes on aircraft and, and situations where you're flying. If you're flying over the mountains, you don't have much time. If you're flying over Florida, maybe you have an extra couple yeah, of minutes example, to think about this. Yeah. Do you have an example of, a, let's say, were any of the saves due to an engine out shortly after takeoff? Oh, yeah. We have uh, our, our first Cessna save, uh, John Faris, very accomplished pilot, 40 years flying for his business. Uh, he's he's a, an attorney. 
he's doing his annual and getting a, a Peterson uh, stall kit on his 182. And by the way, he's putting a BRS on board. Very good uh, decision. So he goes to the to his airport uh, where his mechanic is, and they spend, according to him, and you know, there's a video that, that you you can probably see on our web or, or on YouTube of his accounts. You know, I spent a good hour and a half going with, through my, with my mechanic through my logbooks and everything was done on the aircraft. And he mentioned something about his fuel tanks not, not venting. And he, he said, look, why are they not venting? It's, he, it's hot. And, and did you fill them up as I suggested? And the mechanic says, yes, so we fill them up. So why are they not venting? And the mechanic says, well, because they're not on. And he just, boom, disregarded that. So this is, as I said, a very accomplished pilot, very many years flying, have taken training in all the good schools, flight safety, whatnot. Religious with his checklist, religious. It's a small airport. Uh, he takes off on an intersection around 1,600 feet. He needs like 500 or so with this you know, rocket that he has Peterson conversion in. So he runs through his checklist and goes, uh, you know, and says, what do you do? If you guys know it, you have left, right, both, and off. So when the fuel selector valve is in both or on-off, it's a north-south orientation. It's a short airport. It turns the engine on, goes, warms up a little bit, does a screen run, takes off at around 300 feet, starts a turn to the direction of wherever he was going to take off to, to his home base. The airport was like 10 minutes away. And around between 300 and 400 feet, engine out. He had done his mental exercise of how and when to pull the chute the the plane you know just you know imagine a high high nose up attitude to to get off a short field and with his peterson kid the engine goes out he reaches down pulls the handle parachute deploys and hits a couple of trees lands there their parachute does his job he walks away from it then he started thinking, what happened? Why is the engine out? And then he, he realizes and he looks down. And as you know, the, the north-south orientation of, of the fuel selector valve, instead of being on both, as he, you know, he called it on his checklist and he physically touched it, he didn't look at it. And his mechanic, since he did an annual and he was working on, on the aircraft, he turned it off. Uh, but a very of, simple you know, mistake. That's very, enough. very simple mistake that anybody can do. I mean, I've learned from that. And now I, every time I get on a Cessna, I just look at it. I just don't touch it, feel it. It's like I want to look at it. On a previous show, we talked at length about the need to do a very detailed inspection of your airplane after the airplane comes out of maintenance before you fly it. It's not just a simple walk around. You need to really focus on your airplane because you don't know what switches have been thrown, what levers have been thrown, what position they were left in. You need to do a good run-up before you leave the facility. Make sure the engine's not there. Not a brief run-up, a good run-up. Because if he had done a good run-up, he would have run out of gas on the ground in that case. I mean, there's so many things that if you're into your airplane and you do the due diligence with the great detail that you are going to save yourself a problem. But so many of our pilots today just don't do it. They just don't do it. Enrique, is there any of the BRS systems on any aerobatic airplanes these days? 
Yes, there is. Uh, there's a, a lot of uh, experimental aerobatic uh, planes. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's uh, interesting you mentioned that we have a very interesting save uh, done in an air show that happened in down in Argentina and South America on Iran's S6, I believe it was a model. Uh, he was going through his routine and one of the wings failed. Uh, I guess he, he was going negative and, and he exceeded the, the, the value of, of the negative force that the aircraft would, would sustain and the, one of the wings just folded on him and started to spiral down. He was had the presence of, you know, and, and again, I, I know personally the pilot and and he, he always told me and then all of them that, that fly uh, the acrobatic aircraft down there with the BRSs, they all go through the mental routine of, okay, what happens is, what do I do? We might have a mid-air collision, but what are we going to pull the chute? We pull the chute. And he was, even the, the MC at, at, at the air show that was on contact radio with him, called him. Pull the shoot, pull the shoot. That certain enough, the guy pulled the shoot, and you can see the videos as well. It's coming down, lands uh, nose first because he wrapped as he was spiring. He wrapped the whole shoot bridles on the on the tail, and he came nose down. There was also one of the points uh, had a failure because of the wing folding, and that's why the the systems are all designed that one point of the three or four that the aircraft typically has should be enough to sustain the whole aircraft. So yep. he came down nose first, and uh, which is not bad because the way that you absorb energy is good as well like that. You know, one of the things with uh, the parachutes over the years has been that the aircraft, if you do have some sort of issue, has to be at a certain speed or a certain attitude before you pull the chute. Is that, is that fact or fiction? In most of the cases, the chute is designed in within the envelope of the aircraft. There is obviously physics that, you know, if you're doing 400 knots, it's yeah, not yeah. going to work. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we had an unfortunate uh, situation with a Cirrus many years ago. The guy iced up and, and he was like screaming at, well, I don't know how fast he was coming and the thing didn't, but he was way outside the envelope. There, there is physics to things and you have a certain speed that you can deploy this and it's sometimes placard sometimes it's not because it's in within the capability of the aircraft like most of the lsa's are, are limited to 120 knots and our parachutes are like way beyond that so it sure. shouldn't be an issue the cessna 182 172 are probably the same thing even though we have them placard at 135 or 33 knots it's indicated so you should be okay, and we've seen deployments over at 190, 200 knots with, with no issues. How about altitude? That's not How about an well, the maximum altitude, you know, as you know, you can come out of, you know, Apollo 11 came in with the parachute, so <laughs> that's, that, that shouldn't yeah. be an issue. But but you want to, if you have control of the aircraft, you want to get to around a decent altitude that is anywhere between 3,000 to 2,000 feet, so you can kind of choose a footprint of where you're going to land. Once you pull the parachute, it's not an aircraft anymore. It's just cargo coming down. The wind is going to take you to wherever it's going to take you. So, and the minimum altitude, there is some minimum altitudes that have been demonstrated. Like, for example, if you fly a Cirrus, depending on the model, you have one of your callouts, and as you take off, it's caps available at 500 feet for the models, the G4s and before, or the G3s and before. And G5 and, and all this is 600 feet caps available, or BRS available, as I would like to say. 
the reason you're doing that is because there is a there's a math equation where the parachute is for a fully deployed. We've come to know with so many deployments and so many tests that we've done that you know, and we want to say this that is if you think you need it, just pull it, because the only thing that can happen is is gonna it's gonna be better. We've had pulls down to 50 feet that has saved the guy because the deceleration that this gives you might be a survival event instead of just crashing at 80 knots, you might be crashing at 60 knots. If it's a smaller aircraft and they're crashing at 40, you're going to be crashing at 20. Even though the parachute is not inflated, even though the whole the canopy is not you know fully expanded, the drag that this produces in the whole system is going to take some speed out of you. Uh, sure. Your, your aircraft. And yeah. all this is about energy management. Okay. Sure. So how you manage the energy that goes into the body, and this is what you know we're you know good at, and and how are we uh, BRS is in in a path of finding cra- we call it uh, crash strategies of how you're going to absorb the energy in with the fuselage, with the wing, with the landing gear, with the seats, with the parachute, in order to make it a survival event. With regard, John and I have had conversations, and because uh, he's an airline guy, and you see stories every once in a while that people have come up with conceptual ideas that they should make airliners that have an escape pod where all the, the passengers and the crew are that should be ejectable from the aircraft and then come down with a parachute. What, you know, I mean, you know, that I think is pie in the sky just because of the size. And, of course, the speeds that typically those airplanes are traveling at. And, you know, even if the airplane's heavy, low and slow, you're never going to get something that big under under canopy in a short period of time. What's the largest aircraft that you guys are looking at for the BRS systems? We are constantly looking at uh, new solutions. And we have stuff that we're in the eight to 10,000 pound development right now. The problem with an, those fiction, popular mechanics kind of uh, sketches that you see out there is that, you know, some things in physics and in engineering, you can scale them up. Some things you just can't because then the volume and the size is yeah. so yeah. much bigger than, than you wouldn't carry any passengers. The other thing is that, you know, if you look at aviation is one of the safest things to do. And especially if you're flying on an airliner, you have competent crew. It's not one guy. Most likely you have at least two engines. And the time between minimum failure rate is, you know, acceptable. The risk is acceptable. That's why you can still fly airlines. If you slap a parachute in an airliner and you have to leave half of the passengers down, then it will be economically feasible because this is going to wait. The fast we can fix because we have this solution, which is called a slider that decelerates and, and opens up. In a fashion, it decelerates and then absorbs the energy and the canopy opens without destroying itself if you're flying. But I, we don't see this as a, as, a, as a viable solution for an airliner. You know, we, we don't see that. What we do see is, is all this new market that is, is coming out, which is the VTOL market, the over-elevate movement, all these drones manned or unmanned where we're going to be transporting people from point A to point B 
we're, we're working with a lot of manufacturers that are developing these solutions, as well as other, you know, aircraft manufacturers in the, you know, yeah. eight to 10 pound uh, size aircraft. And we're more focused in the, in the general aviation, the owner, owner pilot guy that wants to typically are the guys that are unfortunately, they're not, they might be commercial pilots, but they're not professional pilots and they're not, you know, in a regimen of you go to the training, you, you do it like an airline. And you're doing this for business, and then you fly with your family. Your family for business. You're headed somewhere else because you're going to get this deal done, and you're flying your X Y Z plane. Yeah. And that's where sometimes it's different. I used to fly my my two ten around for business, and one too many times my head wasn't there, and I just grabbed my instructor and says, "Come with me," because I'm thinking yeah. of something else. Exactly. I just can't be doing an IFR flight in a night. We made to 10 coming back and forth and hitting three, four stops. Why? Yeah. Why wouldn't we just bring him along? I'm, I'm sure I'm going to learn something in the process with him, and I'm going to be much safer. We'd have a lot more doctors in this world if, if, uh, <laughs> if they, <laughs> they took that advice. I mean, the, the, the Malibu was uh, always called the uh, doctor killer. Are there any airplanes that the chute won't work on? You mentioned you had them on site on uh, Cessnas. What about Piper and and some of the other ones? The technical aspect of it would work on any aircraft. There's some weight and balance uh, restrictions on some of the aircrafts, and there's some weight limitations on some aircraft. And the entry barrier basically is the time and the cost of of getting an STC done, which is. It is important. It is It is a lot of uh, time uh, and money. Enrique, are there some fuselage designs that just won't handle the installation of the chute? You know, you look at a, a Piper Comanche or a Piper Piper Arrow no. or something like that. Are they such that you could you could put a BRS system on those airplanes? With yes, absolutely. 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 You have hard points on, on any, any fuselage, you have hard points that should sustain the plane as it flies. And be, the BRS is not going to impose mm-hmm. higher than flying normal or utility category on an aircraft. So if you have engine mounts, you have uh, root, root wing uh, attachment points, uh, we can route ourselves to to places where we know that our system would you know, be uh, one and all with, with, the, with the airframe. Good. So if I bring you a Piper Arrow and I'll donate it so that you can work the STC for it, we can uh, make that happen. I can. Ah, that's what I like to hear. Greg's looking to get his airplane outfitted. Why not? You know, I mean, I'll put every safety device on there. Doesn't okay, matter to we'll, me. We'll, we'll turn it into experimental for a while and then we'll get the STC done and then uh, you have the first one. I love it. That works for me. You know, one of the things that we like to do with this show, Enrique, is, is you know, have our listeners take something away from the show. We try to use it as an educational platform, a call to action when necessary and things like that. In summarizing basically what we've talked about, what are the top three or four things that you'd emphasize with regard to people that are maybe on the fence about a BRS or want to know more about the BRS, or even have a BRS, and should know, but don't know? 
Well, if you already are an owner of the BRS, you are considering purchasing an aircraft with a BRS, make sure it's it's current, make sure it's airworthy. There's a lot of people that are flying aircraft that they have a BRS and they have services that renders the aircraft, at least in the LSA and the certified world, unworthy. You don't want to not only have an issue with having a, an incident, but also an issue with the FAA because you're flying a non-worthy aircraft. Make your checklist, make a mental checklist when I want to use this, if I have to use it. Where are my personal minimums? Don't go outside your personal minimums. Do your, by no means imagination, go, oh, I have a BRS, I'm going to go do, you know, stupid things with it because it never ends up well. So this is a, you know, when everything else fails, then you have a BRS and then you can, you can tell your grandkids about it. That's that's if you do have a BR, BRS. Now, if if you don't have a BRS on board and and you are considering one, just please uh, don't think about the economics of the time. It's the least expensive insurance that you can you can acquire. It is uh, in, in 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 numbers compared to what aviation costs. It is absolutely affordable. Absolutely affordable. There's ways even to finance this if you needed to. AOPA finance has offered us financing of viruses and Cessnas if needed. Um, so if you're going to buy a 182 or 172, ask the seller to just put it into the into the into the sale, and then it's going to be financed if you need to finance it. And uh, we will make uh, everything possible so you can you can have it. NEA and P can do it. We have a bunch of installers. Uh, you can go to our website and, and see, you know, our installation centers. There's a map regarding where are you, the country, and we'll make it happen for you. I mean, this is so critical for us that that we'll make every every effort for for you to have one. On the new aircrafts, we're we're developing. You know, every every day we're we're developing new things. We just got EASA certification on on two two models in Europe for for certified EASA. Aircraft, the Elixir and the Biamero, which is like a like a brother of the Bristol LSA here. They they got an ESA certified and were part of that program. And we're working with different aircraft manufacturers uh, in in different programs that are very exciting. When you deploy to shoot, is there damage to the airplane when all these cables come out? I'm not talking about ground damage when you when you hit the trees or the or the ground, but so when you deploy to shoot, you don't own your aircraft anymore. The insurance company does. Some insurance companies are they even uh, don't charge you the deductible if you do deploy to shoot. You need to check, and I think uh, Avenco is one of those, especially in the services, because they want to save lives. The, the whole thing here is not the aircraft. It's not about the plane. It's about the people. Yeah. And, and if we can save another life, you know, who cares about the hardware? Speaking of, uh, of insurance companies, uh, Enrique, do the insurance companies give discounts for having the BRS system on the airplane? The insurance industry is, it's a difficult industry, okay? They used to do that. Insurance rates have gone up and down, up and down, as you guys all know. It's not going to get any better with all the insurance issues with with, with 
737 Max and uh, all the insurance companies that that have uh, had issues with all that, which trickles down to us little general aviations. So it it it, it might happen. It might not happen. It it depends on pilot qualifications as well, cost of the hull. Some they do, some they don't. So I I can't right. tell you. Yes, go to you know maybe we can talk to someone that favors and yeah. helps us and. Maybe we can get up, like you guys do with the Vanco or five percent discount. Uh, but uh, we we don't have anything on it right now. Well, I know that uh, this has been enlightening, and I know that uh, you have now become one of the family members of the flight safety detectives family. So uh, expect to be back on the show. I'm sure that uh, we're going to be getting questions and uh, comments about uh, today's show. We always do. And for you, the listeners, if you do have any questions, uh, you want to talk about this show, you have specific questions for Enrique, you can always go to the uh, BRS website. And it's pretty simple, isn't it, Enrique? What's the website? It's uh, brsaerospace.com. We also have a Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, you name it. Or hit us at info or sales at brsaerospace.com we'll, we'll get those emails and we'll, we'll respond where's your factory enrique pine bluff north carolina we've had different facilities through the years but we we've consolidated all our operations in manufacturing engineering everything in pine bluff north carolina so again if you have any questions you can always send us an email at flight safety detectives with an s at gmail.com. Tell us what you think. We've gotten some great feedback on uh, the recent shows. Uh, John and I are working on dissecting a couple of accidents, some of which are oldies but goodies that haven't been talked about. And we're going to throw a little bit of twist in there. And so uh, we'll be doing that here in the future. But again, we appreciate you listening. We appreciate your feedback. And we try to make this show better based on your feedback. So we greatly appreciate that. And I want to say thank you, Enrique, for taking uh, some time to talk to us and educating the audience about the ballistic recovery system. I think that, again, like you said, it's cheap insurance when you look at it overall. And given the fact that we are all, especially John and I, have been doing this aviation accident investigation for a very long time, whatever we can do to improve aviation safety, but uh, the ballistic recovery system. I think that, again, like you said, it's cheap insurance when you look at it overall. And given the fact that uh, we are all, especially John and I, have been doing this aviation accident investigation for a very long time, whatever we can do to improve aviation safety, we're all for it. And while it does cost uh, some money, when, like you talked about, when you spread it out, over the the long haul, if you will, it is a cheap insurance policy. I want to thank you and, and, and the opportunity, and and you know I'm always uh, available for for any other you know things that you need or any questions. So uh, thank you for for the time. Thank us. We got thanking you. I mean, you've enlightened me, and I'm sure you've enlightened a lot of our listeners to the shoots. I mean, I had no idea that that they could survive in that some of the uh, speeds that you mentioned to a deployment of the 200 knots i mean i had no idea that you could do that and saving an airplane it's between three and four hundred feet with an engine failure i mean it really is an unbelievably good product so i'm sure that our sponsor of emco 
would be happy if all the airplanes had the chutes on it. And uh, again, if anybody's listening and in, in, uh, in the need of insurance, please contact Ventco and uh, again, tell them that you've listened to Flight Safety Detectives. You get a 5% discount. And the number to call them is 888-879-0389. Or you can just uh, go on the, on the, uh, the web and do eventgo.com. And if you put in flight safety after it, it takes you right to a discount. But eventgo.com or the 888 number will get you a 5% discount. And Greg, uh, I would, uh, I'll let you have the last word. Well, thank you, my friend. It's, uh, it was uh, very enlightening. Again, thank you very much, Enrique. We look forward to having you on a future show. And to you, John, again, I can't wait for COVID to be over so that uh, we can actually be in the same location at the same time so that when I need to get your attention, I don't have to jump up and down in front of my webcam trying to get your attention via Zoom. I can actually throw stuff at you or just come over and smack you upside the head and, hey, get plugged in. So, But it's always good to see you, and um, I always enjoy this time of the week to talk aviation safety. So with that, again, we appreciate you listening to this episode of Flight Safety Detectives. So please stay safe in your personal life with uh, all the COVID precautions. And if you're going to fly, fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.